Greetings, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of All Things Thor. We're going to continue with yet more Thor and his journey into Imagineering at Walt Disney Productions. This is part five, and we don't know where this is going to end up, but this is a good one. It's about uh, 40-odd minutes of factual facts and interesting anecdotes, and I think you're going to find it very enjoyable. So sit back, relax, get ready. Here's Tom, part five, becoming an Imagineer on all things Thor. Hello again. And uh, it's kind of exciting uh, getting a lot of downloads on this uh, episode series. And it's and it's really exciting for me to be able to reminisce and tell these stories and have so much interest from, from all, over the, all over the world, actually. And uh, I couldn't be uh, more excited um, that people actually find anything I have to say um, this interesting. <laughs> you know, I think it's that way with everybody, right? Um, I, we all have a story, I always say. And, and sometimes um, I, I tell people, you know, your story is just as interesting as mine. And... It, Everybody has an interesting story, so it's important to to um, have confidence in the fact that your story is going to be unique and interesting to other people, even though you're bored with it because you've been living it all this time, right? <laughs> so, getting going from um, the last episode on becoming an becoming an Imagineer part of my podcast. Uh, series of all things Thor. Um, I had highlighted my experience on the research trip um, to Japan. And I hope you listened to that and got a kick out of some of the things that happened with my my new co-workers that bonded and we all did research and and had adventures in Japan where the new Tokyo Disney Seas uh, resort and theme park would be built. And it was an important uh, research trip for us. So I get back. I get back to my little office in um, Glendale at Walt Disney Imagineering. And uh, it's time to get back to work. And, and again, co-workers, um, and even some of the other people in the company who had heard about me coming on board, um, you know, started to warm up to me finally. Uh, I guess word got around that I was a pretty nice guy and that uh, my talent and my ability to um, do what I'm doing as well as not appearing to have any agendas or being a smart ass or anything like that was uh, finally realized. And so I started to develop a lot of friendships, even with people on other projects that were going on at the same time, like Animal Kingdom and a few others. And, um, you know, I have to say, this was happening for me where my office was in the Mapo building, as I said before, which was where all the animatronic figures had been built in the, in the fifties for Disneyland, uh, the pirates, 
for the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, the, the Tiki uh, Birds um, and the um, uh, Moments with, with Mr. Lincoln. All, anything that was an animatronic feature that was being engineered and pioneered at that time was happening in the Maple Building. So when they changed the location of those sorts of things happening, this building became exclusive to this new big, huge project called Tokyo Disney Seas. And um, I still remember being relatively new, only months new. I don't know if this was maybe six months into the game or not. It's hard to tell. I still couldn't help feel the presence of Walt Disney. Uh, at least I could feel it as I walked through the hallways there and into the other buildings. And <clears throat> a lot of times other projects, even though you were an Imagineer, there was projects going on in there that were confidential that uh, were top secret. Some were in research and development. Some were just other theme parks or, or projects being developed that you had to have clearance to go in and look at, or at least you weren't supposed to be looking at it. And so in some of the larger buildings, uh, they had these huge, massive black duvetine curtains that surrounded areas, you know, that were not supposed to be seen because there was magic being made behind those curtains. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and I recognized certain like spots in Imagineering that were parts of the interior, you know, of course, I think it was expanded on, or at least from the time that it was WED, it was called WED Enterprises, W-E-D, Walter Elias Disney, uh, to, to the point where it was started to become Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, you know, there was a lot that went on in the, what later became more the administrative building on um, Flower Street. Um, and uh, when I'd walk into certain parts, all of a sudden I'd go, why, why do I recognize that corner? And that something about the shape of that room and the, the way the lights are on the ceiling and everything. And it started to dawn on me that these were the areas that I had seen on the wonderful world of Disney when, of course, I didn't see them when it first came out. I was, wasn't born uh, when, when the wonderful world of Disney first started. And Walt made the weekly show about the making of Disneyland. But what I did see eventually when I'd start to see those reruns when I was a little kid in the 60s and stuff um, was, <clears throat> you know, Walt was very proud of, of this. And he was very proud of his Imagineers and, and showed them off all the time. Um, the it was um, you'd see he'd he'd go in and uh, he'd bring uh, the uh, one of the Imagineers to talk about what they're working on on their on their desk, and some of it was probably staged um, a little bit, but you could tell 
a lot of it wasn't because you could see there was just a plethora of stuff going on and desks piled up with <laughs> with materials and little miniature models being made and stacks of paper and sketches and so I'm sure I'm sure it was the areas where this work was being done it's just that they would kind of you know be on their best behavior when they were filming with Walt uh, for the show The Wonderful World of Disney and um, I recognized these different areas. So I was like, I swear I saw that area on that one episode when they were talking about this or that, or when when uh, Rolly Crump was talking to Walt about the Museum of the Weird that he was working on that eventually would become the Haunted Mansion. And him presenting his model of um, the... Uh, it's a small world attraction that was originally for the World's Fair. And then I'd see other things. I'd see my friend who I've already given you the episode on about um, Lee Thomas. She was working in there on something, probably the birds the, the, the in the tiki room off to one corner. And you'd see her walk by. And, and other familiar faces that looked much younger than when I got to know them at, at Disney, if they were still there. And, and, and it started to dawn on me, you know, where I was. And, uh, and, and being a massive Walt Disney fan, I, I couldn't help but still be uh, entranced and would kind of walk down a quiet hallway sometimes and say, hi, Walt, and introduce myself, you know, when no one was looking. I'd go, my name's Tom. I'm an Imagineer now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be involved in something for you here. And will you keep an eye on me? So you could kind of look over my shoulder and, and give me a few little nudges, you know, when I'm, like Lee used to say when, I'm doing something right and when, when there's something that you raise that eyebrow in that Walt Disney way when when you were not quite approving of something questioning something uh, could you just give me little signs and so obviously I was still full of pixie dust as they say and I wasn't as seasoned as some of the Imagineers who had been there for a while some of which were, were actually there when Walt was still alive and some who you know, I had been there five, ten years or, or whatever and now considered themselves, you know, more seasoned Imagineers in the new realm of of Imagineering. And uh, <clears throat> again, I went in there really ignorant of, of any thing that was appropriate. I didn't recall ever getting a rule book that told you how to act like an Imagineer or what the exact definition of an Imagineer was. You know, I had my own preconceived ideas by watching what Walt did. And he was my, in my mind, my mentor of what I wanted to emulate. Not that I wanted to ever be in his position, but you know, his way of thinking and, um, and some of the other Imagineers I had seen you know, through television and through meeting some of them later, early in my career when I worked in other places. 
So I thought, okay, well, I'm an Imagineer and I'm a, and I'm a director level, so I've got some authority and um, and can kind of shape my own experience here. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to take the talents that I have, multi um, skilled toolbox that I have, and I'm going to use them as I see appropriate. Because no one is telling me I have to do things any real one way and I've been given a lot of freedom here considering the, the, the responsibility of of this attraction um, so um, I started out being focused on as I said mysterious island section of Tokyo Disney Sea the central area that was Captain Nemo's um, caldera and volcano and specifically the ride journey to the center of the earth because it was um, needed to be conceptualized the only other con uh, concepts that had been done even remotely were that this this experience in in japan um was once envisioned from what I understand, as a studio tour, kind of like Universal Studios, but you were, you know, on a tram and whatnot, and so you went through different set work um, on this tram and experiences. And one of the experiences was a ride through a small section that highlighted Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, as envisioned by Jules Verne and his books. And uh, so they showed me what had been done for some concept presentations a few years before. You know, there, there was a, 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 I recall a model, a little model that was done of um, a, a worm-like creature and a, a little tram going in front of this worm, this giant worm and some pictures of, uh, another another artist uh, again. I just don't feel the liberty to name names a lot because um, I want to be careful about that in this whole experience. I want I want this whole this whole series to be about my observations, um, my interpretations of what I was seeing, what I was feeling. So you know. It's diff I don't want to say it is a fact that this happened. It, it, well, a lot of it is a fact that I, that I'm telling you it, as I'm as it unravels in my mind. But I'm not going to give strong judgmental opinions as much as I can um, about individuals or uh, political things because um, I didn't have the capacity to understand what was happening to me. And so I'm just telling you what I experienced and what I pondered in my mind. And it would be the same thing you would do. You know, you're trying to figure out where you stand and what's going on. So um, that said, I'm like, okay, where do I begin here? You know, they basically left me alone and said, go. Come up with journey to the center of the earth. So, again, after looking at what had been done on the studio tour idea that had been scrapped, I guess that 
didn't fly and that whole concept of the studio tour was rejected. Um, and it was decided that this was going to be a massive theme park like it had never been done before. So this was the central e-ticket attraction. And for most of you, I think you know what e-ticket means. But if you don't, an e-ticket attraction refers to in the years when Disneyland first opened, you got a, a book of tickets when you purchased your um, entrance. Actually, I take that back. That's when I started going. I think even before that, well, maybe you maybe you got a book of tickets right at the entrance um, marquee. But also, you I remember you could purchase tickets in other areas throughout the uh, theme park, uh, as I recall. But anyway, they were they were lettered. This ticket book had these colorful tickets that you tore out of a perforated ticket book, and um, E ticket an e-ticket and and um was the most valuable it was for the the most uh epic um and you know uh attraction <clears throat> or ride uh, in the theme park at the time or at least um it could be three of them so you got very few e-tickets in your book you know, I'll, I can't remember how many. It was not very many. I, I'll say something like you got like three tickets. And then, then it went on. You had other letters. You had, you had all the way down to, I think, an e, a, uh, can't remember what the last ticket was. It was the least valuable. But it was the ticket that, um, I'm ashamed that I, I used to know all the tickets, but I'm, <clears throat> it's been so long since I've talked about a ticket system. Uh, you'd have to ask uh, one of the guys that, that really know, remembers this stuff uh, well. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, uh, so I got an e-ticket attraction. So I have to really perform. I mean, e-ticket was Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, you know, uh, level. And... Um, so the first thing I started to do is try to do my research. That's what I always do and always had done in any other company I was in. Is first thing I got to do is come up with a story in my head. I used to teach this to my students too later when I, while I was teaching at Pasadena Art Center College of Design while I was here at Disney. So I, I, I used to be at Disney that I'd all day and then I'd eat dinner real quick and get to art center by seven o'clock at night teach until 10 and then from 10 to 11 i had independent study students and so it was a long day twice a week and um anyway so i went and did my started doing my research um as much as i could on the book i read read the book at least once by jules verne journey to the center of the earth took a lot of notes uh, of course, I told you, I looked at um, the movie by, that was made in the 50s by Pat Boone on Journey to the Center of the Earth, and uh, nothing nothing really excited me. Nothing, um, nothing really resonated with me, you know? I was like, I think this can be better. I think that this can be layered with 
emotional, psychological sort of experiences that you're not even aware of. Um, as you go through this ride, you have to go through it 10 times and me tell you all the different things to look for before you even start to see all the thinking that went into it. And I'll get into some of those details that I thought about that you would never think you'd think about or need to think about designing a ride, which is basically about being underground in caves and encountering some of, some of the scenes and creatures that were described by Jules Verne, which I took great artist liberty in redesigning some of the creatures. But, but, but loosely, I, I tried to stay close to the inspiration of the book. And so, so I, so my office was piled, we had what was called the IRC at Imagineering, the Imagineering Research Center. And it was wonderful. It was like an incredible library of books on all kinds of topics. And they had, um, research experts in there that would help you research different topics and they had Xerox machines and everything. So you could take picture, take copies of out of books and photos. You could check out books. You could do all kinds of things. And then real close to the IRC was the archives, the Disney archives. And let's say you wanted to check out an, a, an original illustration by Mark Davis for some reason, or um, an original um, blacklight study that was done in, in blacklight um, that would be taken into the ride for the person who was actually going to paint the, the blacklight sets in Fantasyland. But the art director had done in miniature, a little miniature mural in blacklight paint you could check out that little original piece of artwork, miniature mural, get a black light out of the lighting department, take it into your office and look at it and study it and see what had been done in the past and and what the Imagineers had learned from it. And so the um, resources available were fantastic. And then in addition to that, like I told you that, you know, they would send you on research trips Um as necessary to be very familiar with your subject matter. So I get all this material. It's stacked all over my office. And one kind of fun side note was uh, in, in the office to one side of me was, and I'll just mention his first name, Marcelo. He was, he had, just finished, I believe, working on uh, Toontown. They had just finished up with um, designing and opening Toontown. And he was absolutely, not only was he the most welcoming, warm neighbor you could ever want as your next office over guy, it would be like having a neighbor that the second you move in and close the door, they show up with a bag of homemade 
chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> that was Marcelo. He instantly welcomed me. He came in and introduced himself and, and whatnot. And we developed a friendship and would laugh and talk in the hallways or he'd come in and sit down and tell a story. I mean, he had been there for a while. I don't know how long. I mean, I want to say at least five years. So he was seasoned enough that he understood the the, the system there, you know, and could kind of give me some little pointers. But the one thing he <clears throat> uh, did without getting too much into focusing on uh, on him too too much because that he can tell his own stories and I don't want to spoil any of them, but um, is that he had decided to, that he wanted to go because um, his drawing capabilities were unbelievable. I mean, he was an incredible uh, draftsman and an, an incredible um, character designer and, and he could draw like a son of a gun. And um, so he really aspired to, to work at the Disney studios in, in animation. And so um, not long after I was there, I mean like half a year, a little over half a year, um, probably he comes in one day and he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be moving on to, uh, to features and, um, to, to, um, the animation department. So I'll be leaving Imagineering, but you know, I want to say it was great to know you. And, um, I want to give you a, a sort of a, a very special gift, uh, that, that was given to me <clears throat> for your office. I go, Okay, you know, I figure I'm going to get some little, a cool little trinket of some sort. Well, he, he ends up taking me in his office and showing me this gorgeous wooden original animation desk that was used way back in the original times when Snow White and everything was produced. He had gotten it handed down to him by another Imagineer to have in his office. And um, he named all the names of the many of the artists that had used this animation desk, and they were—I don't, I don't remember all the names, but um, but they were many of the names that uh, you would recognize if you read into uh, the original animators. And I said, "Well, of course, I, I would love that in my office, you know." And and I had a good size office, so I hadn't figured out how I was going to use it yet because I already had a big drawing board. And that this is before. Everyone was drawing on computers. So, you know, drawing boards, big, huge ones, were how most of the work was pumped out. But this animation desk, I was going to make good use of. So it ended up, the movers came and moved the desk into the other corner of my office, and I fixed it all up to kind of look like a little old animation studio, you know. <laughs> puts, puts a little old vintage Mickey... Um, uh, it's paraphernalia on there and uh, I did end up using it a few times you know because it has that rotating um, circle on it in the middle where the pegs are where the animators would stick on the paper uh, on the pegs and be able to rotate this um, wheel not being an animator I'm just describing it as I saw it uh, to be able to turn the, the drawing into different uh, directions um, so you could tr 
draw upside down or on an angle or whatever you needed to do in order to uh, be able to draw what you're doing. <clears throat> so what a gift. I, I cherished it very much. And it just absolutely, you put your hands on the wood and you could feel I swear to you, you could just feel the magic. I mean, I almost wanted to put my ear to the top of the wood and listen and see if I could hear the murmur of Walt talking and and the the jokes and shenanigans that would have went on in the studio at the time, you know, when they were pitching new ideas for films. Anyway, um, so... Again, back to work, I was just thinking and trying to think of what how I wanted to reshape this story as a ride experience. And so I started laying out the scenes. You know, I, I said, okay, I'm just going to lay out scene to scene. And I'm going to make it much longer than it's probably going to be because I don't know yet how long this ride is going to be timed at because they hadn't developed the track uh, length yet in the where it was going to be located. So, you know, I was thinking in the back of my mind anywhere from, you know, could be anywhere from three to, you know, I let myself design it all the way up to like 10 minutes, you know, and just, just spitballing it in my mind. But I really didn't care. I just wanted to write a whole... I wanted to create an experience that was almost cinematic, you know, with a start and uh, a development and a climax and everything. And um, so off I went and started writing all these different scenes on note cards and sticking them up on these big giant cork board boards that were all over my studio and started to doodle. And uh, as, as I was doodling, um, before I get into like my thinking on the story, the first thing that came to my mind is, okay, this is all rock. My ride was, was the whole experiences were inside of a giant 130 foot tall, 30 something foot tall, really well executed executed volcano not unlike the Matterhorn but I um, had to have its track laid inside of this big cone you know so there was a lot of things I didn't know so I couldn't really design too much of the scenes not knowing what the space was going to be like but I sure could design and which is the most important part of being a concept designer which at that point was my role which would turn into evolve into being asked to be the art director or, or a show designer. Well, really, I was kind of doing both right off the bat. I was being a concept designer and a show designer because I was, and a writer in a way, because I was writing the story and uh, the ride progress, but with little notes and with a series of drawings. And I... Um, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got an idea. The same way a film, animated film, I hear 
and I repeat, uh, I heard this was a process and I witnessed this because I would go to the studio and see them doing this in meetings and I never was fully explained the reasons, but I kind of figured it out. But, you know, I hear there's a lot of things that go into, you know, you don't just draw cartoons and color them and you make grass green and the sky blue and, you know, do that throughout a film. There's a whole bunch of opportunities you have to create emotion and an entire um, physical and emotional experience. It's like being an orchestrator of a whole bunch of instruments um, that are being played. You know, you, 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 have to, you have to figure out how am I going to layer all of these people or all of these, these tools or things I have available to me in a way that they're going to be harmonious, yet not one note or one instrument stands out more than another, unless it's meant to be at a certain point. Um, and it creates an experience that when finished gets the wow factor, you know? So I said, I'm going to strip this down like the, like I would if I was doing an animated film and I'm going to take elements of physical, uh, uh, of, I'm sorry, of um, uh, sensory experiences, and I'm going to create a, um, a, a line of experiences that change from the beginning to the end, like that will be layered on top of each other. Visually, you know, what are you going to see visually? What are you going to hear? Um, what are you going to see? How is the color palette? How are the colors in each scene going to change that help the person on this ride experience changes in their emotions as they go through? Only by color alone. If I only had color alone, how, what, what would I do? And then I was like, hey, I have rock. I have, let me just throw out the, just just for the sake of argument, the uh, let's say we have eight minutes, you know, for a rot for this ride. And um, so for those eight minutes, I'm not just gonna make a the same old rock cave like you see in most rides, you know, um, that go through caves, you know, it's just the same rock work all the way through. I, I want the rock. If you only had the rock itself to look at to light up. How can I make a person start out with a certain experience emotionally, like, and then make them go from a tranquil, peaceful, relaxed experience, perhaps mysterious, and then have that experience start to transition into a little bit of anticipation and, and slight discomfort because they anticipate something may be happening that they're not so sure if they should be at ease with to it evolving all the way through that to the point where everything changes so it gets tremendously dramatic you start reaching approaching a climactic moment that is epic and um i don't want to necessarily say say frightening but certainly impacting and dramatic and potentially scary. And you slowly move through that until the story only through rock 
only through the shapes of the rocks. And I was really excited about this idea that I had uh, derived. And um, so I started to doodle these little shapes, you know, on these um, little index cards. You know, what would rock work look like if it was relaxing and tranquil and almost musical? You know, what would mysterious rock work look like? Um, what would rock work look like when it was making you anticipate that something's going on here because the shapes of the rock are changing. So that means that something is going to happen. And then that becomes even more extreme. And at the very end, you get rock work that has such drama and such, um, such a, uh, a, a, a obviously, um, dramatically influenced force upon it that it means that this is the big moment, you know. And all this was done in these little doodles on these cards. And so that was the first, my first strip. Nowadays, you know, now in modern times, we have After Effects and um, other systems that we use many of you are familiar with that that would mix a film for example and have to layer in a soundtrack um sound effects uh scenes that you can cut all that kind of stuff they're on they're on bars they're on um on your screen that are stacked up on top of each other well i started to do this but i did it on paper you know on the board on the cork boards with index cards and the next thing I did was say, okay, what, oh, okay, let's talk color now. Because I had already figured out what my scenes were going to be in my mind. I hadn't designed them exactly, but these things were going to become the foundation of how I designed my scenes. Um, and so I thought, okay, color-wise, what's a, what's a color palette that's going to complement this emotional experience and this storytelling experience that I just told in rock, but now in color. So I started to think of colors and color combinations and, and um, levels of color, like um, uh, color saturation changes, um, more luminous areas as opposed to darker areas because I wanted the brighter areas of volcanic chaos to seem even more bright and fiery and hot because of what I what the color palette and the rock experience I had put the audience or the, the rider through just before that. That was the complimentary prep for setting them up to make this feel even more um spectacular and you can kind of see the thinking a little bit in pirates of the caribbean for example you know in the beginning of the ride you're just in rock work that's um rock work doesn't really change but you're you're in a very ref, uh, confined environment you know the the there's a, a low ceiling and there's rock on either side of you and the tunnel and that's because there's a lot of intention to that, 
because it wasn't just, you know, with no thinking of all, at all. What they wanted is to make you get used to the pinched, claustrophobic sort of feeling around your ride vehicle so that when it, the cave opens at the end and you're in the big battle scene between the Spanish in the castle and the and the uh, big galleon of pirates and cannon fire, that even though that room is sizable itself, that showroom, you know, with the sky and the water and everything, what makes it seem even bigger is because psychologically you were just set up for, um, you just got, you came out of a very cloistered environment and suddenly into this big open environment. No different than if you wanted someone to taste something, let's say a dessert, and it was moderately sweet, let's say, but you wanted them to, not that you'd want to do this, but you'd wanted them to, re, it to really taste sweet and really taste desserty. Well, if right before that, you were to serve something that was very savory, maybe kind of tart, you know, and, um, and salty, and you went from that first dish into the sweet, that sweet is going to taste 10 times more sweet than it would have had you just gone straight to it or from another thing that was just moderately sweet or neutral. So you can see where I'm going with this. There's a lot of a lot of thinking you have to do, or at least th this is what I had learned. These are all things that nobody told me. Nobody said this is what you need to do to design a ride or attraction. It was through my own observations because back then there were no classes like there are now in colleges that teach entertainment design and concept design. Um, I was one of the first teachers at Art Center that started to teach that in the mid nineties. And it wasn't even an actual program yet. It, it, they were thinking about creating a program. And um, so I, I had to learn these things through observation and trying to figure out a lot of this stuff. And um, so I used all these things as I sat alone in my office to start to envision this attraction. Um, and that's what I have always been known for best. And apparently they saw this in me is why I was hired is that I always was a guy who got the white piece of paper that nobody wanted because there was nothing else on it. Nobody knew what the hell was going to go on that white piece of paper, let alone that something eventually on that white piece of paper was going to become a three-dimensional immersive experience for people to go through. But I've all, I get, I mean, I don't know. I, I, you know, it goes back to my childhood um, and having to make a lot of my own toys because my grandpa and my mom said, Oh yeah. So you want a go-kart? Well, let's bake, let's build one. Let's, let's not go to the store and buy one. Let's build one. You want a fort? Let's build one and draw it up. Let's draw it up and figure out how to make it. So it, it shapes a way of thinking um, in the human mind and that I think that uh, was instilled in me very early in my life that 
was my very first training in becoming an Imagineer. And that's the end of this episode. It starts getting more exciting and interesting. So I'll see you next time.